Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Hilary K. Hello and welcome to New Books and Religion, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. A wave of religious leaders in Black communities in the early 20th century insisted that so-called Negroes were in reality Ethiopian Hebrews, Asiatic Muslims, or a raceless children of God. In New World A Coming, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration, Judith Weisenfeld argues that the appeal of these groups lay in how they rejected conventional American racial classifications and offered alternative visions of Black history, racial identity, and a collective future. She's here with us today to tell us a little more about it. Judith Weisenfeld is professor of religion at Princeton University. Welcome. Thanks, Hilary. How did this project come about? What drew you to it initially? In many ways, it has its origins in a course I took as an undergraduate at Barnard College. Um, The course was uh, about religion in racially stratified societies, and it was a comparative U.S.-South Africa course. And... In the U.S. uh, section of the course, we read Arthur Huff Fawcett's Black Gods of the Metropolis, which is, I think the subtitle is Negro Religious Cults of the Urban North. And I became really intrigued and fascinated by a number of the figures, groups, and, and leaders in that work, particularly Father Divine. And it always really, um, stuck with me. I was, especially interested when I got to graduate school in the effects of urbanization and migration in the early 20th century on black religious life. And so I actually thought I would be working on this uh, project about this material for my dissertation, but for a variety of reasons, it got moved to the back burner and just was sort of gnawing at me for many years. And I finally got back to it. The conceptual heart of the book is this term religio-racial identity. Tell us a bit about what it means and why you opted to use it. In some ways, that's what really brought me back to the project. When I was thinking about it as a possible dissertation topic, I, I thought the only way to engage Fawcett's work, which was an ethnographic work from 1944, would be to kind of do you know, an update of, of at the ethnic, in an ethnographic approach. And as a historian, it wasn't, um, I didn't feel equipped to do that. And my questions remained um, historical questions actually about the early period there. And so when I decided to do, to take this on again, it was because I was interested in questions about race and religion in this period and with these groups. And what I had found that, you know, in the interim, there have been really um, useful, interesting, wonderful books about uh, the more science temple and the nation of Islam and father divine uh, and black Jews thinking about how they, how do we think about these groups in relation to Judaism, varieties of Christianity and Islam. And for me, racial identity remained um, kind of marginalized and bracketed in those works. So they took really seriously the ways in which these groups could be members of these groups and the leaders could be seen as, as part of what we might call think of as kind of expanded um, ideas of, of what it means to be Muslim or what it means to be Jewish, for example. But their claims to be Ethiopian or Asiatic or Moorish or raceless did not take center stage in these works. And so what I wanted to understand was why for these groups, members, leaders, 
it was important for them to talk about themselves, not just as Hebrews or Muslims, but as Ethiopian Hebrews or Moorish Muslims and so on. So in thinking about how to deal with that, um, I was grasping for terminology and also terminology that would that would get beyond or the common perception characterization of these groups as cults and sects. And Arthur Huff Fawcett used that terminology, which was common certainly in the 1940s and since. So right, rather than stigmatize them as non-normative religious groups in these ways, to group them together according to what I took to be their concerns with how to understand race and religion in tandem. Uh, and so at some point, quite late in the in the research and writing, I decided to call them religio-racial movements to signal that these uh, these are connected for them, uh, and that that this was what was important to them, and and to foreground that rather than to think about them only as uh, groups that are in relation to what we understand to be orthodox forms of Christianity, Judaism, Islam, for example. So I, I grouped them that way for the purposes of the book, which is not to say that that's the only way to think about them. But but I was thinking, I, I was really interested in what connects these groups, why they emerged at the same time, um, and how to think about them in relation to one another, rather than in relation to uh, older established congregations or denominations, for example. Which is a perfect segue to my next question, because I'd like to ask you a bit about the interwar backdrop for these groups that you discuss. So who are these folks you're following in this book, and what made them open to innovative ways to think about religion and race in this particular period? I was especially um, interested in thinking about the early members, the leaders and, and members of these groups in the early years that they begin to emerge. That would be the, the 20s and 30s, especially. And these are groups that are the unique product of this period that uh, many people talk about as the Great Migration, when uh, millions of African Americans from the South migrated to cities in the South and to cities in the North. And in the Northern context, they're met by some hundreds of thousands of immigrants from mostly the British Caribbean, but also um, French, Danish as well. And it's in these contexts that black urbanites are starting to think about religion and race in different ways from the past. And it is really just this uh, kind of, it's a combination of a, a, a certain sort of liberation from older forms, right? Not everybody does this by any means, but moving from small communities, small church congregations in the South to the North, to cities where people can be more anonymous, where they're encountering new religious, political, cultural forms in meeting people from the Caribbean, from other parts of the United States, the people begin to, to feel sort of um, loosened from older traditions. And this happens as well in a period of, so it's the early 20th century. These are people who grew up in the period of solidification of Jim Crow segregation. And I think and the, the religious factor as well is that uh, they're, they're people who, who grew up in the wake of emancipation and reconstruction. And in Black Christian contexts, the, the kind of theological engine was that uh, God would free us from slavery, right? We're like the Israelites. We have a, a, a map of the kinds of things that God is able to do for God's people, and we will be freed from slavery, and this happens. But in, again, the wake of 
the end of Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow segregation. There's lots of, of questioning and searching. And people are, are wondering, what does it mean that God did this for us? And yet, you know, we're still subjugated in these ways. We're still constrained. And so that opens up the room for people to think about other possibilities. Um, and, and I do think also um, the, the meeting of people from the Caribbean uh, in, in many of these urban contexts who bring a similar but different uh, conceptual frame about religion and racial identity. Also kind of it, these get to be an engine um, for the, the creation of these new groups and the appeal of them to migrants and immigrants as well. You had to do a lot of digging to get behind the usual story, because as you said, there has been some work done on these groups, but it often focuses on the leaders and your interest in these migrants, whether they're African-American migrants or immigrants coming from the Caribbean. It meant that you had to dig. So tell us a bit about your method. What kinds of sources did you find? What sorts of obstacles did you come up against? What research triumphs resulted? It was definitely another thing that was it felt like a, a, a barrier to the project back when I was thinking about it at various points in the past of sort of how to get beyond just what the leaders said. What are these official theologies? And I think I, I felt like I could never explain the appeal of the group simply by the focus on leaders and official theology in part because of the commonplace cult frame and the connection of cult to charisma. So, the, you know, the explanation for what drew these people, certainly by critics and commentators at the time, was that, it's, you know, the, um, the mesmerism of a charismatic leader. And to me, that, that, couldn't, that only went so far. That's true. Um, they were charismatic leaders. They had innovative uh, and very, to some people, appealing theologies that generated social structures and, all, you know, that demanded all sorts of things of, of people that they found deeply satisfying. But to get beyond that required something else. And, and these are people who are, you know, the early membership are um, working people. They are poor. They are not often often not literate and not people who left a lot of records. And so how to get it, this was a challenge. I kind of stumbled into a couple of avenues of research. In I was teaching about a graduate course about some of these groups just to revisit um, the primary and secondary literature, and I wasn't intending to write about it. But I was interested in one of the rabbis of, of one of the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations, Wentworth Matthew, who I knew from from secondary literature, had talked about his place of birth in different ways. He he was he was born in St. Kitts. Uh, later, he talked about himself as having been born in in Nigeria. So I was just interested in finding some documentation to to talk with the students about and change over time and how he represented himself. And I went to Ancestry.com to look, see what I could find. And I found his draft registration card from World War II. And I didn't even know that these things were in there or, or anything about the genre of the draft card or the process. And uh, the, the cards are from what was called the old man's draft. So men over 45, those are the ones that are in there for research. And it had uh, a list of, of racial designators that was printed on there that the, on the card that the draft registrar had to place a check next to. And for him, the registrar checked Negro, but wrote in Hebrew as well. And I, that surprised me. And I sat on it for a long time. And then I wondered, gee, I wonder, you know, if members of these other groups did similar things. And so I started searching for people in the more science temple and father divines followers. And I found in the end, really um, hundreds, maybe I may be up to thousands um, 
of draft cards in which men in that age category who, right, these are the only ones that are available for research. I've since seen some other ones, so I know that younger men did this as well, asserted their their religio-racial identities on these draft cards. And so that revealed to me uh, a number of things. One, the seriousness with which they approach this question of identity. So at this really profoundly important moment of registering for military draft during a world war, these men insisted that those categories on the form didn't represent them and that they needed to be represented properly. And I found in other kinds of uh, files similar assertions. So one man I found in, it was an FBI file, he he wouldn't go through the rest of the induction process. He was a younger man because his draft card had the wrong racial category. He wanted his religio-racial identity. So that just opened up a world of um, possibilities for me in thinking about government documents as a place where people asserted these identities and... Um, and, and challenge the government to take seriously how they understood themselves. So draft cards, census forms, naturalization papers, paperwork for citizenship, um, FBI files, which I used both to track government surveillance of these groups as potentially subversive, but also just for the wealth of mundane details that FBI agents compiled about how people dressed and what they ate and where they lived and what their um, religious ceremonies were like and what their places of worship looked like. So that turned out to be also a really rich source for getting at kind of lived religion of members of these groups, even as it's collected in the process of, of government surveillance for potential subversion. Those sources, and in the book, you have a few of those draft cards that are reproduced. The sources really struck me because it seems so obvious that those might provide, I mean, now that you've made it seem obvious, it seems so obvious that those might provide really important information about the ways that people understand themselves. And as you put it, the seriousness with which they take these identities. And yet, strangely, in histories of American religion, we so rarely focus on those kinds of documents. We use censuses, but but not those other documents very often. I think that's starting to, to shift. And your book is one really good example that's ahead of the curve on that. I think it's hard. It's just really hard to get at that stuff. I Even in the census as well. I mean, I use the census in a way that, that's often very different from how one might imagine using a census. Um, I mean, I use it in conventional ways in that uh, I mapped people's residences and things like that. But given that there's a larger question about the digitization of sources, but these are loaded into databases that are indexed, even you know at the National Archives or through Ancestry or Family Search, all these these various um, databases, and their goal is to correct what they see as errors. And what I'm looking for are things that are errors. Right? I'm looking for contention and where um, somebody under pressure, you know, a census enumerator wrote Moorish because that's what these families insisted, but then had to correct it in, you know, government, according to government standards and write Negro in order to send this census sheet into the office, I, I'm looking for the mistake. And that that's not indexed often. And so it was very tedious and time-consuming to, uh, to find things that all of the systems we use to index are actually meant to uh, overcome and erase. And yet, for any of our listeners who know you, who know you or have heard you speak about this project, the tediousness or the the tones of joy <laughs> and excitement with which you discuss the tedious aspects of this kind of um, uh, finding needles and haystacks sort of research is is truly awe inspiring. I like it. 
So you begin by discussing uh, how these groups situated themselves within new spiritual geographies and temporalities. What groups stood out for you in this respect in terms of these geographies and temporalities? Once I decided not to think about the groups in relation, primarily in relation to the kind of larger religious tradition to which we might attach them, that is, um, in what ways might we think about the Moorish science temple as Muslim, for example, um, it freed me up to to place them in conversation with each other in, in unconventional ways. And what I came up with in thinking about that was uh, about geography and, and time, which is another subsection there. And so uh, I grouped Ethiopian Hebrew congregations and the Moore Science Temple together and thinking about sacred geography. So the Moore Science Temple was founded by uh, a man who came to be known by his followers as Noble Drew Ali. He was a migrant from Virginia, first to Newark, where he founded a, a precursor group, and then to Chicago, where he chartered, he, he sought actually official government uh, recognition of this group called the Moorish Science Temple. And he argued that uh, people of African descent, Black people, are descendants of the, of the Moors. So they should understand themselves as Moorish American. They are Moroccans, although born in the United States. And that all of these other racial labels of Negro and colored are what he called nicknames meant to erase the true history of Moorish Americans uh, and Ethiopian Hebrew congregations. And that's a label that um, I use as a kind of collective designator. Uh, and they they had different ways of talking about themselves over time. And they were a, um, a collection of independent congregations. But they talked about themselves as not, right, in contrast to earlier African-American history under slavery where uh, enslaved people would have often talked about themselves as like the Israelites and that God would do for them like as he did for the Israelites. Uh, Ethiopian Hebrew congregations, members and leaders saw themselves as the Israelites, uh, as the, the true Israelites in a way that at the same time recognized Jews of European descent. So they, as also part of this history. And so they talked about themselves as Hebrews and saw uh, Jews of European descent as Jews. And, and they are, they saw themselves as brothers in the faith, but as separate um, racial communities having different histories. And that, that distinction between Hebrew and Jew was important for them. And so they looked to Ethiopia as the source, and sometimes they talked about other, other parts of Africa, West Africa, um, as the source of their, of their Hebrew identity and uh, as, the, as an important part of Jewish history. I really enjoy the second section of the book, and you call that section selfhood. It details the various ways that grassroots believers instantiated these new religio-racial identities. Uh, and one really important way across the groups you studied has to do with personal names. So in the first part, when I was talking about geographies and time, it was a way to introduce the groups and talk about the official theologies the leaders uh, promoted and members embraced. But my main questions had to do with what it meant to move from that moment of, uh, of ascent, right? Just to say, okay, I believe I am an Ethiopian Hebrew or a Moorish American or an Asiatic Muslim for the Moorish Science Temple or raceless for Father Divine. And then to move from that is what I, I accept that to what it meant to, to inhabit that and to, attach oneself oneself in a really uh, profound and enduring way to that identity. And so I thought a lot about various ways in which kind of the body becomes a, a site for doing that work of, of, of 
detaching oneself from being a Negro and probably a Christian and attaching oneself to these other identities. And so names were important for lots of the groups. Um, in the Morris Science Temple, Noble Drawley taught that the, the true, what he called tribal names of Moorish Americans were Bay, B-E-Y, and Eel, E-L. And so uh, members would take that as a tribal name uh, and attach it to their existing name. So um, Reuben Fraser becomes Reuben Fraser Bay, for example. Um, and uh, he provided uh, identification cards for members where they could write their true tribal name and that had an assertion of their religio-racial identity on it as well. Um, and famously, the Nation of Islam members rejected their slave names. And uh, when the founder and first the prophet, the, when the founder, were, um, W.D. Farad, was with them in Detroit um, in the early 1930s, he people would relinquish their slave names through writing a letter to him saying, I have... Um, learned this theology that we are not Negroes, but the original people of the earth, and we are Asiatic Muslims, and I wish to relinquish my slave name. Please give me my true name. And he would give names to people like Muhammad or Karim or or Pasha or Allah. So we see in the early years people have um, names, surnames that were given by W.D. Farad, and after he left and Elijah Muhammad um, became the prophet of the group, people relinquished their names and took an X as a placeholder in uh, anticipation of Farad's return or Allah's return. And for Father Divine's followers in this group called the Peace Mission or International Peace Mission Movement, they also, they use names in a very powerful way to both, again, detach themselves from their old selves, which he talked about as a kind of, um, as, as mortal beings. So to be, allow oneself to be characterized racially and was to allow oneself to age and be sick and die and he presented himself as God, the God of the Bible in a body, who came to establish the kingdom of God on earth and bring eternal health, wealth, happiness, and life. And in order to be in the kingdom of God, people had to, again, relinquish their, slave, their, their mortal names, sever connections to their families, and take on new names. And people took names that represented spiritual qualities they aspired to um, manifest in daily life. And so his group got probably the most attention around their names because they were, um, they were not usually changed legally, which is part of a, a problem when they would go to vote or get a driver's license, for example. But they would be names like Glorious Illumination or peace, love, or wonderful love, or happy joy, things like that, that um, that the journalists and relatives would talk about. Uh, it's one of my favorite phrases from a newspaper account. They would become lost in the anonymity of a cult name. So they would really sever their connections and connect themselves to Father Divine and his kingdom through these names. Another part of that section called selfhood, and it is expressed especially well in Father Divine's movement, explores bodies, what one eats or doesn't eat, what one wears or doesn't. What are some examples of bodily expressions of these new religio-racial identities? Once I started thinking again about how people inhabited, you know, what it took to become one of these, a new religio-racial being, um, it was all of these bodily things were were unavoidable. 
Um, and in the kind of most straightforward way, members of the Ethiopian Hebrew congregations um, found it important to take on um, a kosher diet. And the Morris Science Temple, which over time had a number of factions, but early on, um, not eating meat was important to them, certainly not eating pork as, as Moorish Muslims. And the Nation of Islam, food practices involved rejection of things that W.D. Farad and, and Elijah Muhammad, the later prophet, talked about as slave foods, so no pork, um, but also certain kinds of um, southern foodways like collard greens, these were rejected as tying people to slave habits, and they prescribed a new diet of mostly beans and certain other certain vegetables um, as as the foods that that the original people of the earth ate, and they also engaged in fasting practices. So food, particular diet and food restriction. Father Divine, again, got the most attention because he displayed the bounty of God's kingdom in what was the central ritual of the group, uh, a Holy Communion banquet. And these banquets famously had... Uh, multiple courses, and it was at this, you know, people would sit at the table and plate after plate after plate would pass first if Father Divine was there through his hand, so he would touch it first. And he actually valued Southern Black cuisine and valued, again, the bounty as opposed to the Nation of Islam where they were very focused on food restriction. And so uh, eating a lot was something that was a positive thing in Father Divine's kingdom. And sitting at this Holy Communion table and expressing in song and testimony, commitment to Father Divine was the central ritual. The aspect that might be most familiar to our listeners regarding new religious movements are their interactions with the world around them, as well as their own attempts to reconfigure certain structures like family and community. You already alluded to that. You were talking about that great quote from a newspaper being lost in the anonymity of a cult, which, of course, is partially about cutting off contact with one's family and, and what that's like. What did you find in terms of how some of these groups dealt with things like family, child rearing, sexuality? Again, for Father Divine's group, they often came to public attention through questions of, of family relations and this issue of, um, of cutting off ties with families meant that Adults who came into the movement who had spouses or children often abandoned them. Sometimes sometimes parents would bring their children into the movement, but they would have to interact with them as simply another brother or sister in the movement, uh, as one would with one's spouse if they came into the movement. So these ties of family no longer applied. And... Um, children were raised communally there, and there are a lot of stories about the kind of psychological stress that that placed on children. Um, another aspect that sort of ties the the bodily uh, issues to these family questions uh, is about medical care and Father Divine particularly in the early years of the movement, prohibited people from seeing doctors and uh, asked them to, required them to use, uh, in the, content, in the uh, tradition of new thought, to use their minds, the power of their minds, to overcome any illness 
or injury they had. And when children were at issue, uh, neglect of a variety of kinds, including failure to uh, take them for medical attention, brought uh, a justified uh, negative spotlight to the movement. Um, So family in Father Divine, one gave up one's mortal family, as they talked about it, in favor of being a child of Father Divine, uh, and that was the primary relationship um, for some of the other groups, all, all of the other groups remained fairly conventional in their um, family structures, heterosexual nuclear families that um, were linked to this the particular religio-racial community in a strong way. But and children were to be educated within these traditions uh, in ways that kept them as much as possible from what they saw as the kind of damaging and incorrect information that would come from society outside. But for the most part, the family structures remain the same. And for a group like the Nation of Islam, the gender gender hierarchy became sharper. That is, or, or gender, notions of particularly gendered roles became Uh, hardened. All the groups nurtured some aspect of community building, which is not totally separate from what you've just been talking about in terms of child rearing and family. But some of them were buying new properties and developing it or moving into pre-existing structures. What were some of the ways that they did this, this kind of community building that you cover in the book? One way had to do with their interest in economic development through a religio-racial lens and all of the groups had some sort of uh, business enterprises that would um, they, and they had different you know their particular religio racial theologies generated or kind of frame these in in specific ways or ways that are um, again tied to these theologies but they all had businesses that were meant to make them, self-sufficient for a variety of reasons. One, you know, for the nation of Islam, two, they had a a restaurant and a store that they felt uh, and tried to have a farm as well, would be necessary to help them preserve their community when uh, Allah would return to reign wrath down upon white American civilization or white civilization on the earth. So that kind of um, the autonomy, food security that that would generate would help them survive this coming apocalypse. The Moore Science Temple had businesses uh, that were focused on food and healing. Noble Drali had uh, founded a Moorish manufacturing company that made some patent medicines that were for healing. And that was one of the things, one of the powers his followers believed he had was the ability to heal. And this medicine kind of extended that beyond. Um, And Father Divine's followers um, were deeply invested in economic self-sufficiency he, in order to be a member of the, the kingdom of, of God under Father Divine, one did have to be self-sufficient. So he, during the Depression, prohibited his followers from taking any kind of government aid. And uh, they, they lived communally in sex-segregated celibate community um, residences and people pooled their resources in these and so sometimes people just worked at their regular jobs and fed their salaries into the community and sometimes they worked in peace mission businesses which ranged from restaurants where the same kinds of foods that were served at the banquets would be available to um, any kind of store people um, or business people 
felt qualified to start that would be under the banner of this movement. So there are things like um, gas stations and auto repair shops and tailors and cleaners and all sorts of, of things. So that the business and farms also, uh, and both the Moore Science Temple and Father Divine's movement had f- small farm communities where they generated um, produce for the stores and restaurants or other communities. So the business part is one of it. And the other that um, I found really interesting, I knew that Father Divine's uh, followers lived in these communal contexts, but I found through looking at the census that members of the Moore Science Temple, especially uh, lived in proximity to one another to a degree that that surprised me. So in urban contexts, they would um, get apartments in many apartments in the same building, in adjacent buildings, and live near, found a temple, right, locate their place of worship near where they lived. And so um, f- for them and for the peace mission, it seemed to me, I got a really strong sense from finding these census records uh, of how, uh, a sense of how they tried to create a kind of counter space within the space of, of the city, to create their own kind of religious counter space, religio-racial space, um, even as they're interacting outside. Um, and finally, for the Ethiopian Hebrews, Ethiopia was of interest to them, and one of the early congregations works to try and set up a community in Ethiopia after Haile Selassie becomes the emperor. So a small group goes over, and it doesn't it doesn't take off for a variety of reasons, and the leader dies, uh, and then uh, Italy invades Ethiopia, and so that kind of falters for a a whole range of reasons. And some of the remaining people in Wentworth Matthews congregation try and and establish a community on Long Island in the unlikely uh, uh, town of Babylon, Long Island. Um, So they're, they're thinking about ways to, all of them, kind of formalize their religio-racial worlds within the urban environment. That's too funny. So either you go to Ethiopia or you end up on Mm. Long Island and in Babylon of all places. (laughs) It's wonderful. So a key question for these groups is whether they fit within the United States at all. Do they view themselves as American or not? What were their or where were their promised lands, as you put it in the book? We just heard about Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. What else? How how did they view themselves vis-a-vis the United States? I expected to find more hostility than I did, in part because some of these groups uh, often get talked about as black nationalist groups, which implies a certain um, commitment to a nation that is not the United States. And that's certainly true for some of the groups and especially the Nation of Islam. And it's true for um, factions of the other groups at different times, right? So there's a texture to it. But in in the early years of all of the groups except the Nation of Islam, there is an interest in being seen as American as well as religio-racial. And so certainly one way to think about these groups and and others have written about them in this way is not necessarily as religio-racial groups, but as as ethnic groups, right? Seeking to carve out an ethnic identity within American identity. So that is one way to think about them. Um, But it's it's striking to me that, uh, so I'm interested though in the way they, they talk about racial categories and the the categories 
they propose are always in relation to Negro or so it can be in some ways maybe both racial and ethnic. But in thinking about their relationship to the United States, it's striking that in on the the identity card, identification card that Noble Drali designed for his members, uh, it says at the bottom, I am a citizen of the United States of America. And that that the religio-racial designator for him, you know, one of the terms they used was Asiatic Muslim, but the other maybe more common one was Moorish American. And that American part was important to him. And he talked about being loyal to the country and um, being part and parcel of the United States. And the FBI begins to surveil the Moor Science Temple and I think the total number of pages of surveillance for that group far exceeds any of the others in in this period or even through the 1950s. And they begin to look at them because they think they are um, avoiding the draft and are subversives during World War II. And it's not the case at all, really. There, there's some resistance, but these tens of thousands of pages really do not find the thing they're looking for. They find people who are going into the military, but asking that they be recognized as Moorish Americans. Um, so they find people who are voting. Same thing for Father Divine's group. They're trying to vote there. Father Divine becomes very patriotic especially in the context of World War II, but he sees America as um, the the most fruitful site for him to establish the kingdom of God. It will be a kind of starting place for um, spreading the kingdom of God. And the Ethiopian Hebrews as well, even as they're looking to Ethiopia, um, by the 1940s they are um, very proud and promoting the fact that they have members of the congregation serving in the military and and they call on people to vote and so on. So it wasn't, um, I, th- I think it's, I expected them to be more detached from politics than I found them to be. They're invested in change and um, ensuring that they're recognized as they want to be, that their children have the opportunity to assert their identities and they challenge um, school curricula, for example. Um, but they're, all of this is to say they're very engaged and they really, really want the census to represent them correctly and the draft card and their driver's license and their voter registration. And that, to me, says something about an uh, an engagement, a, a desire for connection that I think hadn't so much been recognized before. Did you find any difference between folks who were from the United States born there and people who had immigrated from the Caribbean who were also major players in these movements in this respect? I mean, Within Father Divine's group, many of the immigrant members, because he is so patriotic and beginning in 1936, he becomes increasingly interested in electoral politics and develops this program called the Righteous Government, and they have a convention and uh, generate a platform, political platform that has to do with peace and nonviolence and disarmament and anti-lynching and uh, a variety of other things. And, And so he wants to see people elected who will support his platform, and so he calls on his followers to vote, and we and we see a a rise in naturalization applications on on the part of his members. So they actually have um, citizenship, or they send them to citizenship classes. The newspapers report that there's a uh, over enrollment in these classes in New York, for example, because Father Divine's followers are trying to become citizens, following that directive to become involved in American politics, we do see lots of people 
trying to become uh, naturalized citizens. And the, the Wentworth Matthews congregation called the Commandment Keepers, Ethiopian Hebrew congregation, from pretty early on, actually in the 1930s, they run citizenship classes as well. There are these really interesting um, notebooks of questions that obviously somebody was studying this in a collection at the Schomburg Center. You know, question who is the district attorney of New York and that they're they're learning about civics and um, to become naturalized citizens. I don't have as clear a sense of, of how many of them do, but it seems like there's a structure in the congregation to do that as well. You discuss so many people in this book. You've mentioned a few of them. Is there anyone who really stood out for you in particular, both as you were writing and now in retrospect, as you look back on the project? I had two people who, who stood out. One was someone, I, I think I found him pretty early on, uh, his name is Reuben Fraser Bay, and he lived in Indiana. And I came across him in an FBI file where the FBI agents are are interested in some people had reported that he, actually that he was saying things that were politically subversive. And he it, this so they're interviewing his neighbors about how this came to be. And the neighbors say, well, this guy, Reuben Fraser and his wife, uh, Ophelia, they were devout Baptists and she taught Sunday school and the children went to the church and they were all really great community members. And then Reuben went to Chicago to the World's Fair to, in 1933 to the Century of Progress World's Fair. And he came back and started saying, I think we may not be Negroes. I think we're Moorish Americans. And he talked about seeing um, what are obviously members of the Moorish Science Temple wearing fezes. We haven't talked so much about dress, but for certain of the groups, dress was an important thing. The men would wear a fez and they wore harem pants. And he and some other family members went back to Chicago. And then according to this FBI file, in an interview with a neighbor, one Thanksgiving, he made an announcement that they were all members of the Morris Science Temple. And he opened up a suitcase and took out Fez and these clothes, and they all put them on and took the name Bay. And I just, I was really compelled by his, his certainty and the way his neighbors um, recounted this, that he, he heard this story of religio-racial identity and it, it grabbed him and he was able to enlist his family into this. And then sometime later, I found that um, two generations down, his so his grandson was the leader of, of a particular temple in Chicago. So he he was certain about it. He embraced it. He brought his family in. He transmitted it across generations. And that was kind of exactly the story that um, I had hoped to find. But I also found Miriam Sadler, who was an immigrant from Nevis, and her family it was another kind of story that I found really compelling um, and maybe didn't expect as much. But she, um, I was sitting in an art in the at the Schomburg reading the some of the the congregation minute books for the commandment keepers Ethiopian Hebrew congregation, and I saw the Sadlers listed their children as having gone through a kind of a consecration ceremony that Wentworth Matthew did to incorporate children into the community. And they all went through this at the same time. So they were a little older and the family had just joined. And I realized that I recognized this family from uh, material I had found from some years later from Father Divine's group. So they came to New York from uh, Nevis by way of Boston and sought out 
you know, somehow they encountered these Ethiopian Hebrews and they joined that congregation. But then some years later, they joined Father Divine's Peace Mission Movement and entered that community. Uh, Miriam and her husband separated, that is, they lived sex-segregated celibate lives. I'm not sure where the children were at that time. And they took uh, spiritual names. She tried to become a naturalized citizen um, under the name Virgin Mary and was denied citizenship. And he became a citizen under the name Moses Defendant. And then some years later, they left that group. And I don't know what they did after that, but I know that one of their sons became a... um, a champion boxer, which is how I came came upon them later in the newspaper accounts, in newspaper articles. But that, you know, in contrast to Reuben Fraser Bay's certainty, are the Saddlers searching, and both of those things, I think, really, um, both of those stories show the at different aspects of that kind of the seeking for an identity that's not the longer standing conventional Negro Christian. And that it's really the product of this period. And again, both of, of migrants and of, of immigrants doing similar sorts of things. The Sadler story is wonderful because it also shows the benefits of looking at these groups coterminously. I mean, really thinking about them as groups that were appealing to people in this period and that people saw links between these groups in the sense that seekers like the Saddlers would be drawn, perhaps for somewhat different reasons, but nevertheless drawn to these religio-racial identities in multiple groups like that, which obviously you would not find if you were looking at them each in a silo or only comparing the Ethiopian Hebrews to Judaism and Father Divine's movement to new religious movements or, or something exactly. of that nature. Yeah. yeah, and I did have that the sense of, I'm probably the only person who can put this together right now. Mm, yeah. But I did find other, then, it, then actually it signaled to me to look for other kinds of um, stories like that. And I was never able to flush out anything as elaborate as that, but it, it tuned, tuned my ear to that kind of movement. The other part of Miriam Sadler's story that you just told that is really resonant of the importance with which people took these identities, even ones that would have been over the course of a lifetime, short-lived perhaps, but the fact that she would try to be naturalized as a citizen using the name Virgin Mary, and that for her, it was more important to have that name recognized than potentially be recognized as a US citizen. So to maintain her more precarious political position in order to really stake a claim in this religio-racial identity is pretty interesting stuff. As you said, it shows the seriousness with which they they took these commitments that they were making. Yeah, and there were other similar cases of people who chose, certainly for Father Divine's group, not to be uh, associated with what they saw as a spiritually damaging former name. They chose their new spiritual name rather than um, citizenship or voting or a driver's driving. license. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In a book with as many stories as this one, I'm also really curious about what ended up on the cutting room floor. Are there any anecdotes or people that you wanted to include, but that didn't make the cut in the end? Most of what got cut were stories that were similar to the ones that were in there. Um, I had I had a section in the last chapter in which I talk about how um, journalists and mostly Protestant ministers responded to these groups and and other um, rival new religious movement leaders responded to them. And so to think about the ways in which um, beyond the relatively small numbers of members over in this period of these groups, the groups and their religio-racial claims had a broader impact in the ways in which people responded to them and had to kind of um, solidify their own commitments through 
engagement with the claims these groups made. And I, ha- I had a section, I mean, I do, I talk about how in the book there, I talk about how holiness and Pentecostal leaders take on Father Divine. So people like Elder Solomon, Lightfoot Mishaw, and Daddy Grace, and um, for example, take him on as a way, I think, of perhaps securing their own position within mainstream Protestantism, even right as they're kind of on the margins as cast as holy rollers. I I had a section that was about many other individual new, I don't call them movement leaders, they were more kind of lone figures who popped up and would kind of challenge some of these groups. And so I think I, Sufi Abdul Hamid is one who may, who stayed in the book, but there was, there are a number of other figures like um, Prophet Costoni. And there were, there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of figures with turbans and names. And so I limited the groups I was, focusing on to groups, actually. So pe- uh, leaders who founded things that they wanted to draw people to and saw themselves giving answers to identity and history and so on, rather than kind of lone figures who, um, of whom there were many. And I wrote about some of them and how they engaged these new movements, and they got cut out. But it certainly gives a sense of the religious ferment in this period amongst African-American migrants and Caribbean immigrants to the United States. So in other words, the the folks you're talking about in this book are not the only ones in this period, but rather this is this period where there's this fluorescence of these kinds of questions and and, uh, changing religio-racial identities. Right. And the other thing I didn't get to include, I didn't write very much of it, so it wasn't technically, it was a cut theoretically, um, it had to do with the way the groups were, rep- were represented in popular culture at the time, and as another way of thinking about the, the broader reach of the claims and the ways in which engagement with them, often through satire, um, uh, helped people solidify their own positions, their own commitments. And so there were, I've written about some of these things elsewhere, Father plays about Father Divine-like figures. And, and Marcus Garvey is an important kind of backdrop to lots of the, the movements in that his, he was a Jamaican immigrant who's, who founded the Universal Negro Improvement Association and produced this transnational right, sense of a kind of global black identity. And a number of the figures have literal connections to him. So some of the early Ethiopian Hebrews, but also see him as a model. And he had a religious program in a Christian um, mode in his group, but a lot of the satirical engagements of of the n- new religious movements also kind of hint at Garvey, kind of bridging between Garvey's movement and these. So it didn't. I ended up finding that it it was just going to be all about Father mm. Divine. So the whole book could have been about Father Divine. So I cut it, and it and it was long to begin. Many of the ideas in this book also reflect ongoing themes in your work, as you said, partially stuff that you've published that didn't make it into the book, but stuff you've written before. What are you working on now? More on some of these groups or other projects? I was struck in in this research by the by the way psychiatrists engaged, Father Divine in particular. There are some published psychiatric studies of followers of Father Divine and children of followers of Father Divine, um, who mostly in New York, who ended up in uh, psychiatric hospitals because uh, of 
child abandonment or spousal abandonment and they're sent for for psychiatric evaluation and a number of of new york psychiatrists wrote some studies and they were interesting to me in thinking about how charisma was represented for example or or the susceptibility of certain kinds of people to what the psychiatrist talked about as cults but in addition to those kind of focused analyses of the things at hand, all of these studies had these kind of prologues that talked about race and religion in ways that seemed, they were just were very curious to me. So I started looking at what psychiatrists had to say about African-American religions. So that's what I'm working on now from uh, from the late 19th century through maybe the 1930s, how how psychiatry and, uh, and African-American religion and ideas of race interacted. Sounds fascinating. I can't wait to read that. But before that happens, everyone who's listening should, of course, pick up New World Are Coming, Black Religion and Racial Identity During the Great Migration, which is available now with NYU Press Thank you so much for speaking to us about the project. Thanks for your interest in it, Hillary.